economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We also have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, my fellow producer and graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right. Well, welcome. We're uh, going to open up the door to free will and freedom and determinism. Is this life of ours all deterministic? God has a plan and that plan is fixed. And so you don't have the right to choose Cheerios or Fruit Loops this morning, or is it uh, true freedom with free will? So Peter's a hardcore determinist, it sounds like. And Justin is somewhere on the compatibility spectrum, which we'll have to rehash from an old episode. So we did talk about this in a previous podcast, but Peter was not in on it. And we learned that he's a radical here in this sphere. So we're going to open up Pandora's box. So Justin, you want to lead off? Sure. Yeah. So we did a three-part series on free will earlier, oh, that's which right. you can go look back at. So we did a a session on determinism, a session on what's called libertarianism, and then a session on compatibilism. And this is confusing because in the debate about free will, libertarianism means something completely different than what libertarianism means politically. So let's just throw the term libertarianism away for the rest of this discussion and say free will, right? A free will advocate or something. Okay. So Let's briefly go through determinism, libertarianism, and then maybe we can talk about compatibilism too, or maybe Peter can uh, jump in at this point and tell us why he's a determinist. So uh, determinism is the thesis that all our actions are determined in the sense that we could not have done otherwise. Now, we like to think that, you know, when you watch a stone roll down a hill, You might not be able to predict the way it's going to bounce, but we don't think that the way it bounces is due to the stone making a decision, right? The stone wants that there's a point at which the stone could go right or could go left or like the stone is faking out other stones or anything (laughs) like that, right? We think the stone just bounces the way it's going to bounce, right? And we think this for, you know, a lot of the things in nature. We think when our computer goes wrong, Maybe we accuse our computer of trying to foil us or whatever, but really what we know that the computers are deterministic in a sense. And determinism says humans are determined too. So one of the arguments for determinism is the materialist argument for determinism, which says since humans are made of matter and brains are made of matter and brains are minds and since our brains control our movements and our brains are physical and the laws of physics, the laws of physics are at least pretty much deterministic. Therefore, our actions are deterministic too. It's hard to predict what we're going to do in the same way that it's hard to predict where the stone is going to end up at the bottom of the hill when you just see it go down at the beginning. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't absolutely determined what the stone was going to do. And that also doesn't mean that it wasn't absolutely determined what we were going to do today. 
So does that make sense with determinism? Yeah. And if I remember correctly, to my surprise, you thought most philosophers and maybe academics are deterministic or they, they have a deterministic view of the world. I think that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. If I remember right, I thought you had said something like that, which kind of surprised me. Yeah. And then what we'll call free will advocation, free will advocacy. I wish I would have chosen a better word. I did. <laughs> the classical defense of free will is the belief that there are at least some situations in a person's life where they could make one of two decisions. That is, which way they go on the garden of forking paths that is their life is up to them at a point where it is metaphysically possible that they could do one thing and also they could do another thing. Not just that it's hard to predict, but that it is legitimately open to them. If you could somehow roll back history and then let it go again, things might turn out differently because an agent chose a different thing at a given time. And this seems like the background psychology that we all have when we are living through our day-to-day life, right? We, uh, you know, we get to the lunch line and they ask us what we want. And, you know, we think I'm going to make a choice here. And, you know, it's decision time. Right. And if you've ever been at the table and somebody goes, what do you want? And you go, I'll start with somebody else first. I'll make, you know, I'll, when it gets to me, I'll make a decision. And then it gets to you and you go, cheeseburger or whatever. Right. <laughs> it's very hard to be a determinist about your real life in everyday terms. Nobody says, you know, what do you want for the waiter says, what do you want? Uh, you don't say, well, I'm a determinist. So I'm just going to wait and see what I order. Right. Then, <laughs> Uh, and that's an old John Searle joke. And <laughs> I'm stealing that. Um, so the advocacy of free will is just basically the denial of determinism. That, And it doesn't say that you're free all the time. It just says that there are at least some decisions which you make, which you it was metaphysically possible that you could have made the opposite decision or made the other decision or abstained, that there was at least more than one choice open to you. So again, determinism is a strong thesis. It is the thesis that you are always and everywhere determined. And then there is a group of people who are widely thought to be cheaters and swindlers and intellectually dishonest people called compatibilists. (laughs) Um, And these are people who think that somehow it's possible to believe that humans have free will and that humans having free will is compatible with however determined humans end up being. And I find myself intellectually in this class of swindlers. So <laughs> that's, I think that's the lay of the land. If yeah. You wanna yeah. And again, uh, listeners, details in those three episodes, we, we dove even deeper. So that was, a, I think, a good summary. So I think it's Peter's turn to lay out his thinking. Yeah, so I think that I'm in a a weird camp for determinists because I agree with Justin. A lot of determinists are that way because they're like material determinists. And so they believe that the entire world is material and therefore, you know, you are just going to respond to outside stimuli just like everything else responds to outside stimuli, like the rock, right? And so this is the usual argument for determinism. And actually, a lot of the usual argument for free will There are some like science arguments for free will as well, like some indeterminacy things, things like that. And I I don't want to get like too far into that because I'm not really actually a materialism determinist. That is, if science appeared to show that people do have free will, I still probably wouldn't buy it. 
just like the fact that it shows that there's probably not free will right now, that doesn't really convince me. No, that's not the, the basis of my argument is I come from this from the perspective of, you know, someone who believes in an all powerful and all knowing God. And my conception of the world is that, you know, God is not thwarted in his plans. And we know that God has plans. And so to me, the idea that God could be thwarted in his plans would be, you know, akin to saying like, he's not all powerful, right? If you could do something that would ruin God's plans, it's like you're beating God. Like to, to me, this, it, it's a nonsensical proposition. And so out of this, I think comes necessarily my view that, well, if you can't thwart God's plan, then you are part of God's plan, right? Including your attempts to thwart God's plan, right? If you go the, the Solzhenitsyn notes from the undergrad route and you try to, you know, not be the piano key, uh, you're still being the piano key. And maybe you separate yourself from your sanity, but you're still the piano key, just insane while you're doing it. So this is my view. I, I, I feel that this is like a, an, an inescapable implication of there being a God with a plan and a God who can't be thwarted. But I, I'm open to hearing why Justin thinks I should be a compatibilist. So just to be clear, because I think what uh, you're saying is a very good, I, I didn't give the religious argument for determinism because if I figured you would be better at giving it. I think, great. I, th I think you did. It's that insofar as you think that God has a plan for you, and insofar as free will seems to, um, if free will means that there are times in which you could act against that plan, then that would mean that it would be possible for you to thwart God's will. Sure. And since you think God is all powerful and you can't thwart God's will, then it, it must be impossible for you to thwart God's will. Therefore, there must not be any times in which you can act in such a way as it would be against it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, I would agree with that. And that doesn't mean you don't feel like you have choices, yeah. right? And this is where you get the term illusion of free, free will. And I believe that there is an illusion of free will. And I actually believe that's a valuable illusion to have. I'm not going to sit around and wait to order, see what I order. You know, that's the, the joke. Well, the, the truth is that my actions, I operate under this illusion of free will. And so I do, I do make the choices. And it's also another kind of side that like people will bring against the determinism argument that I don't think we need to spend too much time on is they'll say, well, then, you know, you can't really treat criminals any differently, can you? And my answer is, yes, we can. Like, it, first off, it's functional. Second off, you know, I, I think it's biblical. So even if someone is fully determined to be a bad person, that doesn't make them not a bad person. It just means that they were determined to be a bad person, right? So to, to say like, well, there's no good and evil still, I don't think that that follows at all. So I, I think we can, unless that's Justin's primary argument, I don't think we have to spend much time on that. Well, I, we would be determined to treat them the way we were treating them anyway. Right? Yeah, that, there, there's so, that too. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I think that this, just this dichotomy between free will and determinism hinges so far on what we've said on our definition of free will that we're operating with, which I said is that it is metaphysically possible for you to take one of two different actions at a time, right? That if you rolled back history, you, you could have done it differently. Sure. Right? And so this way of arguing about the free will question says, let's define free will first, and then let's look out in the world and see if we actually have it, right? Mm -hmm. And there's another way to go about this question, which is to say, uh, and this is what like David Hume does, and I think Stace does this, who's a good compatibilist, is to say, wait a minute, let's, let's actually look at the actions that we call free and look at the actions that we call unfree and see if there is anything in common or that, that separates these two things. So a parallel here, here might be something like, you know, the term water, 
we've been using the term water for a long time, right? Yes. You guys know what water is? <laughs> I heard about it once, yeah. Yeah. What is water? H2O. 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 Uh, Russ gets the star, right? <laughs> when did we find out that water was H2O? 10 years ago, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Peter just found out right now. <laughs> then the last, you know, couple hundred, you know, 300. So, yes. You know, but yeah. we have been using the word water for a long time before that, sure. right? And one of the things that happened is that we learned more about what water is by looking out at the world and taking the samples of water and identifying the thing that all those samples had in common. That is how we found out that water is H2O. Does that make sense? I'm not sure I agree, but that makes sense. <laughs> what part do you disagree with? I don't know that I would say that, that in order to be like that, people were incorrect if they previously identified a liquid that had like dirt in it and called it water because like it's water and dirt or something like that. Now, I think that like operationally, sometimes that things that are liquid can just be water. Like that's fine. I didn't say that people were incorrect previously right i think that would be like the the implication of this right is if if h2 is water h2o is water that means not h2o is not water right so are you denying that h2o is water i'm i'm denying that <laughs> i would look at a glass of water and that only the h2o in that glass is water rather than everything in this water i think there's a useful definition of water that includes like the whole glass even if there's like minerals or something in it so to have a cup of water i don't think you need a cup of only h2o Okay. Was there something about what I said that you thought? <laughs> that was offensive. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, so if I'm holding a, a cup of like normal water with minerals in it, yeah. you know, one thing that you could say is, well, that's not actually a glass of water, right? Because you've got H2O in there, but there's other stuff in there. It's like, if I had water and egg in it and I said, is this a glass of water? You would say, no, there's like egg in there. That's not, maybe you would say there's water in it, but it's not a glass of water. I would say it's different with minerals, for example. And so just because there's minerals in there doesn't mean it's not a glass of water anymore. And I don't know if this is going to be important in a second when you continue on this example, but I have a feeling it might be. So you can continue. Uh, okay. Well, this, this looks like a good spot for our break here. And I also want to add when we come back from break that I'm going to try to explain my theory of how I think the all-knowing God chooses to constrain himself with the beings that he created such that we do have true free will and he doesn't know where we're going to end up at death. We'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordy Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. PPE Fest is coming soon, December 3rd and 4th. That's a Friday, Saturday here at Ottawa University. We have world-renowned speakers, T.K. Coleman of FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, and Dr. Jim Gortney, along with some competitions on, for high school students with philosophy, politics, and economics. This is where high school minds compete and flourish. If you or someone else you know that's a high school junior or senior, please contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. 
It helps other people find our content. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to gourney.institute at gmail.com. All right, so before we jump into my theory on determinism and God, uh, Justin, I think we do need some cleanup on compatibilism. Make sure we're firm with that happy marriage between determinism and free will. Yeah, so uh, so I was talking about this water example before I was so rudely interrupted and Peter <laughs> said that he didn't know what water was. <laughs> the claim was that we find out what water is by looking at the actual world and looking at examples of things that we call water, right? And that when we did that, we learned later and later that water was H2O, right? But that doesn't mean that everybody previously didn't know what water was. And what it does mean is that the nature of the things that we have that we are calling water that determines what that term means right so this is in general called linguistic externalism this idea that the way the world is actually is involved in what our terms mean so if we take this approach and then do what the hume thing where we say let's look at the acts which we call free and the acts which we call forced Maybe we, if we look at these free acts and look at these forced acts, we can find something that the free acts have in common and something that the forced acts have in common. So he goes, what if we take actions that are kind of like functionally the same, like things like uh, being starved or things like fasting? In both cases, you're not having food, right? But we call the act of fasting a free act and we call the act of starving a forced act. Why do we call the, oh, uh, so another, is there another example of like being, you know, maybe something like being a hermit versus being jailed in the one, in the one case, we call it free. In the other case, we call it forced, maybe handing your money to somebody first for like a service or whatever, versus uh, somebody holding a gun to your head, right? Free versus forced. And Hume says, if we gather all our the actions which normal people use the word free for, and we gather all the actions which normal people use the word forced for, then we can see that one of the things that most or all of the acts that people call free have in common is that their proximate cause were psychological states in the agent that acted. Does that make sense? They lost me slightly on the psychological states there. You mean that that they chose to be a hermit or be by themselves. That, is that the state that you're talking about? Yeah. Like their when, state of mind. Yeah. When you fast, you know, when Gandhi fasted, it's because he thought that not eating would help the cause of India. Right. Mm. On the other hand, you know, when Russ locks us in here and doesn't feed us until we finish a Gordon Institute project, <laughs> um, it's because you know I'm not eating because Russ isn't giving us food. Does that make sense? So if this is correct, then what we mean by free acts in the same way, what free means is an action that proximate cause is the psychological effect, uh, state of the agent in question. Does that make sense? Just broadly before you, and you can come up with some objections to this because I understand what you're defining. Yeah. 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 Now the claim that compatibilists make is that, yeah, sure. It turns out that those psychological states that you have might themselves have causes, and those causes might be determined. You know, if you get to the front of the lunch line and it's pizza or you know, a booger smoothie, and you go like, "I'm taking pizzas," 
That might be because you really like pizza and you don't like the taste of boogers, right? Why do you like pizza? I mean, do you, did you choose to like pizza? I don't know. Probably not. I have, I have better memories of eating pizza than I have memories of eating boogers, right? So it might be the case that the desires that I have have causes. And it might even be the case that the beliefs that I have have causes. But if my actions are the result of my beliefs and desires and not the result of, you know, being physically forced or, uh, you know, forced in some other way, then they are free according to this view of free will. So again, the way this argument works is to say what our terms mean is based on how people normally use them. And since most people normally say that most of our actions are free, then by definition, most of our actions are going to be free. Whether or not they are are determined is a different question. And free will is therefore compatible with determinism. However determined we are, it's just going to be however determined we are. But it is a mistake to think that because we can be determined that our acts therefore aren't free. And what determinists usually end up doing, and which Peter did avoid doing, right? But it's hard to avoid doing this if you are determinate, if you are a strict determinist, is, you know, most determinists do end up throwing away morality, right? And so I would think that what Peter is going to say is he still wants to be a determinist and doesn't want to be called a compatibilist, but I would bet he's going to agree with me about all of the moral intuitions that we still want to keep. Sounds like determinism with extra steps to me. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I, I think you're, you're, you're basically all around right, including with my response, right? Is that I don't have a problem with what you just said. I, t- to me, if we're asking the question, does someone take the same way in the fork in the road every time, no matter how many times we roll back history, the answer is still yes. But I don't have a problem conceding that like a popular notion of free might be relevant. And it is, I mean, we've decided it's relevant, right? Like humanity has as a whole decided that this specific notion of free is relevant. I also actually think this is valuable for like another thing, which we don't have to go too much into. Maybe this is a different podcast, but self-imprisonment, you know, this, this is something that like people generally are okay with. You know, we can think of being tied to the mast to prevent uh, going in and drowning with harpies. Like this is self-imprisonment. I think there's a lot of utility in people learning how to take external imprisonment and to change that around in their minds as self-imprisonment for a cause. But maybe that's a topic for another time. I, th- I think we should also get Russ in here and see his uh, argument. Yeah, I mean, I, just to harken back to our last podcast with map and territory, isn't that a, going back to the map, what you just did with defining what free will is? And then you're basically saying determinism is what it is. Is that a little bit kind like of, you went right? away from the territory? Or My claim is that it's only really, it's the philosophers who actually did this map territory thing. And my argument is, let's use words the way the people use them. The okay. normal people use okay. them. The only okay. people who really worry about like, right. the free will debate doesn't come up except right. we can still in philosophy classes, that. right? Yeah. So we should default to the way normal people use words. Yeah. So, so I, I guess I would say to normal people that I do believe in some notion of free will. And then to philosophers, I would say, no, I'm a determinist because like this means different things to different people. And the philosopher will say back, that means you're a compatibilist. If you say that the, to the normal people, you believe in free will, but to philosophers, you're a, you're a determinist. I actually maybe say to the normal people that I'm a compatibilist, because that is even less meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> so as an economist, I've sat in church for many years trying to figure out what God's objective function is. And so we can have those arguments of, well, what, 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 
you, you know, never going to be able to figure it out and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And so, but still the Bible points to God wanting to increase the flock, right? And that the, he wants us to be his child and with him for eternity. So how do you reconcile this with the normal assumption? And I think this is where Peter's coming from, the deterministic view that God is all-knowing, all-powerful. And so he sees our life path and knows how things are going to turn out in its entirety. In other words, God is basically outside of time while we're in time, but God's got all that figured out. And that doesn't really sit well with me as a guy who thinks free will is, is alive and well. And I started pushing the idea that, is it possible for the all-powerful God to constrain himself, to put a self-imposed constraint? Now, if you tell me no, then I don't think that's an all-powerful God if he can't do that. So what I think is that to know everything is to know nothing, which that's the quote Jason, uh, Justin, Justin Hayes. But here's, here's what I'm thinking. So God, back in the, uh, the old days, played with Ken and Barbie, similar to what kids play with Ken and Barbie. And they have fun and they, you know, have the little kitchen and stuff. And, but to know what Ken and Barbie are going to do as we mature, not to say that God was maturing, by the way, I'm not taking this analogy that far, would be to say, well, let's breathe life into them and let them make their own choices and see how they start to understand me, accept me and love me or deny me. And so I think it's possible for God to choose not to look forward, even though he has the power to, yet he has the ability to allow our lives to unfold with us making those choices. He could peek ahead, but that would defeat the whole purpose of finding true love with his creatures that he created. And so I think God subjects himself to be in time with us. He can move things around as time's unfolding you know, he can make a hurricane happen or whatever, you know, it, there's influences that God can do to move pieces around so that maybe we make certain choices or certain things are more obvious than others. But for the most part, he, he doesn't, he chooses not to know the whole life path. There's only been one exception that I found biblically, and I've been searching for people for five years. I've talked to theologians and other people uh, so John Polkinghorne is a physicist, theologian that also has shares this argument. I found him on YouTube at one point. So if you want to check that out, we'll have a link in the show notes to him. Um, and he'll more eloquently state some of this. But the only one that bothers me is the rooster crowing three times. That was one incident where I think because God had a plan and a will for that moment in time, he peeked forward that the rooster was going to crow at the time of denial. But and I think he has the ability to do that, but just because he can peek ahead in time for one instance to fulfill whatever his will was at the time, doesn't mean that he's peeked ahead for everybody of all eternity. Yeah. So I guess I just answer no to your first question. So, uh, not, so, so no, I don't think that it's within God's nature to not know all things is my response. And so your comment in response was that like, that seems like he's not all powerful anymore. I don't think that's right. So for example, if you ask me the question, can God lie? I will also say no. That doesn't mean God's not all powerful. It means God has a nature. And so part of God's nature is good morality. Now, of course, we're defining good as basically what God's nature is. You might say, oh, does that mean anything to me? It means something maybe to you, it doesn't, but there is a certain nature to God. One of the parts of God's nature is that God can't lie. God can't unjustly kill people. God can't, you know, lust of after something that's not his, though that's a, a little bit of a contradiction in terms. 
there are certain aspects of God's character that are immutable. The fact that God's character doesn't change is not a an argument that like God is not powerful enough to change them. It just means like that's the nature of who God is, right? I think this all-knowing aspect is the same thing. It's part of God's character to know all things. We, we see this as, you know, him described as, you know, the God who sees all. You know, that's one specific instance where the, the future is laid clearly out with Peter there. But, you know, we have other instances of God, you know, outright, you know, getting in the way of free will. And so when the Pharaoh is not letting people go and he starts to decide to recant, it says that God hardens his heart. And then he decides to not, not let the people go again so that God's glory will be displayed. And so, and, you know, for example, you know, the book of Job, this is another case where God is basically talking to the devil and allowing these bad things to interfere with Job's life. There, there's lots of instances where God explicitly influences what's going on. To me, like it's, it's in, inescapable that like ultimately your, your actions are influenced and are sourced from God now. Is that c- compatible with some conceptions of free will? I think so. But can God not know all things? I don't think so. I think that would be like saying God can lie. I think the, those are similar things to me is that it's against the nature. Now, I, I actually think this is a place where we could have a legitimate biblical disagreement here. I don't think it exe- it says like super explicitly that God can choose not to know all things in the same way that it says, well, God can't lie. I think that's a lot less clear, but that's my take on it. Well, and I think what uh, verses like God being mad at the people, like why would God be mad? He knew what they were going to do anyway. Right. And so I think that actually adds some genuineness to the words there that, oh, if he actually kind of turned people loose in time and is observing time as it unfolds. Oh, yeah, that that's going the direction I didn't want to. I'm going to intervene. Right. I do. I could be wrong, but I feel like there have been times where I've known exactly what Cedar was going to do (laughs) and watched her do it and still still been mad about it. I don't think every instance of that, the way it's worded in the Bible it seems like God's almost like surprised, I guess, or, or uh, I don't know, learned something and, and is telling the people, I'm mad about what you did. Hmm. And to me, that's a, you know, we can look at that and say, oh, of course, he knew everything or whatever. But why, why was that written that way? I have some, well, <laughs> I have objections. First of all, again, I don't know what to know everything is to know nothing means. I, I don't. It's very static. So, that's similar to saying to be all powerful is to be not powerful at all. And I, I don't think that means anything either. So what I think that your argument Russ turns on is this claim that there might be some tension between our concepts of omnipotency and omniscience, right? Because if you are omnipotent, can't you bind yourself? Can't you bind your knowledge in some sort of way? Mm -hmm. Right. But God is supposed to have both of these qualities, right? So I don't buy the argument that to save omnipotence, we need to deny omniscience, which seems to be the tack that you're taking here, saying that since God has to be all powerful, he must be powerful enough to deny this other omni quality of his that we think he has, right? So I would go one step further in linguistic externalism and say... (laughs) Do we have examples of omnipotence that, you know, we can point to? No, not really. I mean, it's not like we can say, you know, you know that duck is omnipotent or whatever. Um, what we seem to be doing when we ascribe omnipotence and omniscience to God and then saying that they're somehow in conflict is doing that same thing we're doing with free will, where we define these terms ahead of time 
and then see how they apply. When maybe, and this might get back to what Peter was talking about with God's nature, it's like what we mean by omnipotence and omniscience is just the nature of God, right? And if that's the case, then I'm less confident in the claim that since we know what omnipotence means, we know that God can somehow bind himself and that somehow like can, can neuter the omniscience that God is supposed to have. And I just go, well, God is omnipotent. I mean, God is, I, I don't know. I have no idea what omniscience or omnipotence would be like, but I know that, you know, that is what, what I mean by those qualities is whatever the nature of God is. So on the omniscience, I think it's contrary to what we live our lives as, right? So this, this basically has all instantaneous, those who think God has got everything and outside of time, blah, blah, blah. This all has happened already, right? There is no already if God is outside of time. Exactly. And that's, so get, again, to know no, everything exactly, is though. to know nothing. No. And so no, you can no, create, right? you no, can Russ, create, no. look, you can't say <laughs> since, since God is outside of time, it's already happened already. So right? what I, what I really mean by that is that there's, there's no way to really move forward. It's just, it's just there. And again, we can just swallow that wholesale, but I want to try to explain life as we know it of going through time and seemingly making choices, like you said, of. Do I choose to be a, a fast or do I get forced into a situation? And so I think that helps me digest it. I don't know this for sure. I can't prove it, by the way, right? I just think this is an interesting theory. And I felt bolstered when I had Dr. John Polkinghorn, by the way, Einstein level physicist, he, he wrote. And so metaphysics and quantum mechanics. And, and then he's also a theologian and he was, he was actually a preacher or uh, I mean, a, a pastor. So check out his YouTube stuff. I'll, I'll put a direct link to the specific one where he addresses this. And he says it doesn't fly in the face of some of the uh, materialistic arguments, I think was part of what he did with materialist determinism. And, and that one surprised me too. The reason why I think that part of God's nature is that just he knows all things. And like he, it, it's like asking, can God, you know, decide to lie? You know, uh, no, he doesn't want to. Like he doesn't want to not know all things. So to me, this is like outside of his nature. The reason I take that line is because I can't reconcile so many other things in scripture with like this idea of libertarian free will. I can't reconcile the idea of the elect that God chooses the people who are going to be in heaven. Like you're elected by someone. Who are you elected by? Selected by God. You know, this idea that you're saved by grace. And so, well, where's the grace coming from? It's coming from God. If you don't have the grace, you're not saved. And so mm -hmm. God's determining, you know, salvation to a certain extent. We can see this operate too in Paul's life. Paul is knocked off a horse. He, he doesn't one day decide, I'm going to stop killing Christians and love Jesus. Jesus knocks him. Well, actually, it's not in the Bible that he knocks him off the horse. That's the traditional story, though. Jesus blinds Paul and he basically tells him what he's going to do. You're going to go to the fountain, you're going to wash your eyes, then you're going to become a Christian. And then we saw, we see other instances where God specifically interferes with what we would think of as like libertarian free will. Again, the Pharaoh being a, a, the really classic example of this is that God actually changes the Pharaoh's heart to make him do something that you would think, oh, God doesn't want the Hebrews to be kept there, but God makes the Pharaoh harden his heart and not let them go. I think there's enough little things like that in the Bible that to me, like if I'm indifferent between these two views, I see like, well, how, how does the elect work with libertarian free will? I'd have to contort myself to figure that out. I think it's more likely that God has like this specific nature of wanting to know all things and, and having all power, but I don't think it's impossible. I think it's like possible to have like goodwill differences of belief with the Bible here. I don't think like 
scripture screams there's no such thing as uh free will but and so like the elect i don't remember the exact phrases of that that verse but the he elected those who have faith um i'd have to i'd have to i got you know faith alone and so those are the elect i'd have to look at the specific verse that's what i mean i I can't remember word for word but i think there's what what i found is when i've kind of opened my mind to potentially considering and by the way i'm still somewhat on the fence i'm becoming more and more convinced that if we think of god being outside of time there's actually a lot of ways to explain because my dad's been throwing scriptures at me for five years of well what about this and it kind of comes back to even what you were just saying that god can be in time with us and alter things right he's still powerful to Mm -hmm. change a pharisee's mind or whatever in the moment and and then if there's a prophecy which there's lots of he can intervene in time to basically make that unfold as it was said a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago or whatever. So I, I, I haven't found any compelling evidence that way with prophecy and other things that would overturn the potential notion that, that he's choosing to constrain himself to be in time with us. Yeah. So Romans eight is, or actually Romans nine, eight and nine are kind of the classic examples of this where Paul relates the election of people to salvation to the case of Jacob and Esau. And, you know, what does Paul say, you know, determines whether or not, you know, Jacob or Esau became the heir? Well, he says, God says, well, God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. That's how the heir was determined. And, you know, Paul says, is there any injustice on this? Well, no, God's sovereign. Like, this is the final choice. So verses like that, I read to mean like, there is some sort of choice that God is making over who is the one he chooses and who is the one he nots, Jacob and Esau being like the, the Old Testament example. But, you know, Paul is using that metaphor with the people of Israel versus the Gentiles. You know, why is God able to choose the Gentiles now, despite, you know, being with the, piece of the people of Israel in the Old Testament? Well, because he now loves the Gentiles, right? He can choose to love the Gentiles. And so there is a, an aspect to which... I think basically we, we've got this choice that's imposed upon us, but uh, that, that's my whole take. I, again, I don't feel uh, super strong, strongly on it. That's the, between the two, I still would consider myself by philo- philosophical terms, a determinist, but I, I think that I could also be considered a compatibilist. So long, as long as I'm allowed to say that we're taking the same path every time, uh, I think I could be called a compatibilist. So. That is exactly what compatibilists say, sure. right? That, you know, however determined you are, that's just how determined you are. And it seems like people are pretty determined yeah. um, <laughs> that there's some arguments. And I know you mentioned them earlier, like the materialist arguments for freedom of the will that rely on things like quantum indeterminacy. Yeah. And those, those don't seem to work. Those don't seem very free to me. <laughs> no, they, they seem to substitute randomness for freedom, which yeah. isn't what we want out of freedom of the will either. We want the choice not to be, you know, a coin flip that goes off in our head, but rather somehow a decision that we make. I think, though, that does speak to that this whole debate does suffer from like a definitional problem, because actually the interesting thing about that argument that like it's randomness, that's freedom. That's almost like a necessary implication of saying, like, according to the, you know, the standard dichotomy, if you say, I believe in free will, what you have to be saying is there are some things that aren't determined by other things. The only things that can't be determined in some way by other things, like, you know, causally related, well, those are random things, right? And so I think there's a problem with these definitions. I think any sort of definition of freedom that means randomness is obviously not what any of us are talking about. It's not just random. There, there's something going on here. But we, I think we can all agree that, you know, some conception of freedom is, is still operating despite that. 
All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap. Uh, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us. And be sure to pass our information along, our podcast to other people. If you like what you hear and they, you think somebody else will like what we say as well. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.